You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. morning, EBF family. It is so good to be together on this, the second week in Advent, and this season is one of waiting. And if you've ever been, I think most of us can think of something that we have waited for for quite some time. And this is a season that is cultivated, or it's designed to cultivate in us, I believe, a deeper awareness of God's actions, past, present, and future what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will continue to do. And we hear these promises echoed to us who find ourselves between the Advents. And in this this season, we're in a series called The Weary World Rejoices, tracing these themes, these themes of hope and peace and joy and love through the storyline of Scripture. Kind of different from what we typically do in We've been going through the Gospel of Mark in a little bit more depth, but here we hear, uh, in this season, we're hearing these themes explored throughout the pages of Scripture. And just to peel back the layers a little bit, uh, the passages that we're hearing read during our Advent readings are from the Revised Common Lectionary. So we actually join with millions of believers across the world in hearing, even today, hearing these passages read and proclaimed. And last week we traced the theme of hope from the seed that God planted, both in the garden and then through Abraham, to the sapling that grew, then to the stump, and to the sprout of hope from the line of Jesse. And we saw how hope in the Lord, we are called to hope in the Lord because His promises are true, because His Son has come, and because His creation will be restored. Today, this morning, we turn now to the theme of peace, represented by this second candle here. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come to you this morning with troubled hearts. And Father, even in the wake of the school shooting this week, we cry out to you. We ask, God, that you would bring your perfect peace, that you would pour out your comfort. Father, we ask how long, O oh Lord, how long will you allow such violence to continue in our, in our midst, in this world? Lord, would you comfort those who mourn? Would you heal those who are wounded? Cause your gospel to flow, even in the midst of heartbreak and loss. Turn our hearts this morning to the peace that only you can bring through the life and death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. And Holy Spirit, illumine your word, cultivate in us a deeper hunger and yearning for it, and propel us out from here to proclaim it as agents of your peace in this hurting world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It is difficult for us to even imagine a world at peace. According to the International Institute for Strategic Studies, there are 33 active conflicts happening in this world as we speak. 
And if you look at the figures from the, from the UN Refugee Resettlement Agency, there are 82.4 million people who have been forcibly displaced from their homes. 20.7 million refugees, and some that are sometimes forgotten, that is 48 million internally displaced people as well. It's hard for me to even, maybe you're like me, it's hard to even fathom or wrap my mind around figures like that. But God brought this home, I think for me, and made it even that much more personal when having fairly recently had the opportunity to travel to Lebanon and then into Iraq as well, to visit with Syrian refugee families in, in the Bekaa Valley, hear their stories, those harrowing stories of their journey, to think about what would cause them to leave all that is known and familiar with their families, with their small children, in order to find a life somewhere else. Similarly, in Iraq, I got to sit in the tents of Yazidi people, a persecuted minority there in northern Iraq that were displaced from, were displaced from their main homeland when ISIS swept through and took many of the women and girls as slaves. To hear stories of survival, to hear stories of how they had run through ISIS checkpoints and finally made it to a region of the country where the, where the Kurds welcomed them and helped them get back on their feet. We long for peace in the midst of the chaos and confusion, but it can seem so elusive. And the peace that the world tries to offer is so shallow, unfulfilling. People try to find peace through forms of escape, perhaps, entertainment. I think about some of my army buddies who, and, and I, can, I can say this because we've, we've talked about it, how so many of us have tried to dull the pain <laughs> through things like alcohol. I think about... Uh, you know, some of that peace that we chase, maybe living to go from vacation to vacation, just looking forward to the next, the next time away. But the fact of the matter is that apart from the active presence of God, there is no real peace in this world. There is no real peace in our hearts. And when we think of peace, we often describe it or we think about it in terms of the absence of conflict, but true biblical peace is so much more than that. And what I would hope for us this morning is that we would look at that question. What does Scripture have to say about true biblical peace? We're going to do that by tracing the story, the path of peace through six acts in Scripture, six acts. And... I will say this too, we're going to put a lot of the passages up on screen, and I, my prayer is that as we hear these passages, in fact, most of this message is scripture, that they would just kind of lap along the shoreline of our souls, wave after wave, that we would hear these passages, maybe some that are quite familiar, especially around Advent, this Advent season, but that we would hear them afresh, that God would make the strange familiar and the familiar strange. So act one, peace purposed. 
The path of peace begins in the first few pages of Genesis as God creates the world. He makes humankind in his image. And Genesis 2.15 says that God placed Adam and Eve in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. You know, I come from a somewhat, I, I should just admit this, I, I come from a somewhat musical family and we have we're not going to, you know, take our show on the road or anything like that, but I have warm memories of uh, gathering around the piano and singing old hymns in, like, four-part harmony. I don't know if you have that sort of experience. It's the kind of family that harmonizes happy birthday, you know, um, which makes it a little challenging, I guess, over Zoom these days. But God intended for humanity to live in harmony with him and in harmony with the world he, he created. But as we know, something went radically wrong. Act two, peace pulverized. That perfect harmony, that peace with God was shattered when Adam and Eve decided to go their own way. They entertained the deception of the enemy and through their disobedience, sin was introduced into God's good world. I remember putting away the, the dishes one time not too long ago and accidentally dropping a glass in the dishwasher. Have you ever had that happen before? A glass in the dishwasher just totally shattered. And I tried my best to clean up all the fragments at the, at the bottom of the dishwasher. There was certainly no putting that back together again. It's probably why I can't have nice things. But we were created to experience wholeness. But because of sin, our relationship with God and with one another was shattered. All the king's horses and all the king's men can't put it back together again. And the devastating consequences of sin brought about brokenness and pain and death, not only in our lives, but throughout creation. And you don't have to look much further than the events even in, in Michigan this week to be reminded of just how broken our world is. And as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, God drove them from his presence. Genesis 3, 23 and 24 says, So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Here is the first sword in Scripture. And in what's more, in this story, we find the first bloodshed, too, in the creation of garments of skin to cover the man and the woman's nakedness. And the devastating consequences of sin are captured by the prophet in Isaiah 59, 7 through 8, which says, their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes. Acts of violence mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks along them will know peace. When reading a passage like that, we're tempted to think, I'm glad I'm not like that. Well, right after Paul actually quotes Isaiah 59, he writes this in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are left wondering if the relationship between God and humankind can be made whole once more. Act three, peace 
promised. Praise God that he did not abandon us. The path of peace continues as God calls his servant Abraham and promises to make him into a great nation. God concentrates on a group of people called Israel, but the goal is to bless all the peoples of the earth. And eventually Abraham's descendants are enslaved in Egypt and God hears their cry and rescues them. And at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel and establishes his laws. And as part of this covenant, as part of this, it involves the sacrificial law as a way of making peace with God. Exodus 20, 24 says, an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. The essential element of the peace offering was the sacrifice of animals and the pouring out of blood. And this might strike us as modern readers as, as grotesque, but it is a reminder that peace is costly and a foreshadowing of what God would do to secure peace for us, peace for his people. Despite God's provision of sacrifice as a way of making peace, Israel's history is one of ups and downs. It shows the people had no peace, both in the land and with God. This is especially seen in the downward spiral of the judges and in the disintegration of the kingship. And God sends his prophets, his faithful messengers, to predict the coming of a redeemer who would embody peace and bring peace to his people. One such prophet is Isaiah who declares in Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. D.A. Carson writes, unlike the princes in the pagan pantheon who were always the source of trouble and upheaval, this child will be the source of peace, a biblical concept that includes much more than mere absence of conflict. Following Isaiah, then the prophet Malachi ministers after God's people return from exile in Babylon. They are but a shadow of their former selves. And in Malachi 3, which we just heard read, thank you, Brittany, Malachi, Malachi 3 has this wonderful prediction of two messengers, a messenger who will prepare the way and then another messenger, a messenger of the covenant who will come into God's very temple. When the Lord comes, he will purify some sinners like a refiner's fire. And he will judge others. In fact, look at verse 5 there in Malachi 3. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. This figure, this messenger, the second messenger comes not only as a refiner, but as, a, as one who will judge as well. Then in Luke 1, Zechariah speaks of once more of both messengers there in Luke 1, 69 through 75, First of all, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago. 
salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Then in speaking, this actually is in reverse order from Malachi, but then in speaking of the first messenger, verses 76 through 79, and you, my child, this is Zacharias speaking of John, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Act four, peace personified. He is the God made manifest, the universal savior of human life. These words referring to Caesar Augustus are found in a Roman inscription from 4 BC in Ephesus, and they declare the Roman Empire's version of the good news that Caesar is the one who brings prosperity and peace to the world. And it is into this context that a humble son of David is born in lowly Bethlehem. The angels declare in Luke 2, 14, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And John the Baptist is the foretold messenger who prepares the way for Jesus and points to him in every way. Later, Jesus even quotes Malachi 3, verse 1, to make this point, to drive this point home in Luke 7, 27. And Jesus declares the good news of the kingdom of God. We see him in the gospels healing the sick, raising the dead, overcoming spiritual darkness and welcoming sinners like you and like me. And he tells his followers in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Well, the religious leaders are threatened by Jesus and bring him to the Roman authorities to be nailed to a cross and killed as a false king. But what seems like a defeat is actually God's greatest victory. Jesus willingly goes to the cross and gives his life as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sin. Jesus becomes the once-for-all peace offering. And God declares the victory by raising Jesus from the dead, defeating both sin and death. And Romans 5.10 reminds us that because of our sin, we were actually enemies of God, alienated. But peace with God is possible through Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Act 5 peace proclaimed. God enlists the community of disciples, that is us, his church, as the bearers of good news. And in John 20, 21, Jesus says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Peter declares boldly in Acts 10, 36, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace peace 
through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Not only is this peace to be proclaimed, this peace is to be embodied. It is one of the very aspects of the fruit of the Spirit that we are to see demonstrated in the lives of those who trust in Him. And yes, even how beautiful, how beautiful on the mountains, Isaiah 52, 7, are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. I, uh, one of my, you know, favorite, I don't know how to put it necessarily, bits of gear I still have from my time in the army are my army boots. They still fit like a glove. But there's something ironic about, even in the armor of God in, in Ephesians 6, this notion of feet fitted with the gospel of peace, army boots of peace. And yet that is what we wear, boots of peace. We are called to be proclaimers and practicers of peace. Act 6, peace perfected. Even as the message of peace with God spreads, we recognize that we live in between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And the day of perfect peace is coming. As Isaiah eleven six reminds us, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. What a beautiful picture of creation being restored. Jesus is described as the lamb in the book of Revelation. And though the enemies will try to wage war against him, the lamb will triumph over them because he is the king of kings and lord of lords. And so where the path of peace begins with a sword guarding the way to the tree of life, it ends with Jesus and the sword in Revelation. And so if we are to put this path of peace together, Throughout the storyline of Scripture, we see that it begins with He Himself who is the God of peace. Hebrews 13 reminds us of that. And according to Ephesians 2.14, Jesus Himself is our peace. He is peace personified, peace with flesh. And peace is His to give to whomever He wills. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you not as the world gives. The two key words for peace in the Old Testament and the New Testament, shalom and irenae, these are so much more than the mere absence of conflict. These words have to do with wholeness. They have to do with harmony and integration. These are positive terms rather than negative ones. Church, here's the bottom line. If you hear nothing else, hear this. We were enemies of God, fundamentally. We were enemies of God, alienated from him, but peace has come through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peace has come. More than the mere absence of conflict, true biblical peace has to do with the active presence of God in the lives of former rebels brought about through Christ's death and resurrection. The path of peace The peace that Jesus brings means wholeness. It means integration. It means nothing left unresolved. Nothing left unresolved. And the fact remains that because of our sin, we were all enemies of God. Colossians 1.21 reminds us of this. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. 
And then if you look at one verse above that, Jesus made peace through his blood shed on the cross. Peace, like hope, peace has past, present, and future dynamics as well. Peace is promised in the past, can be experienced in the present, but will be fully realized someday. And not only does it have past, present, and future implications, but there are two different types of peace spoken of in Scripture over and over again. Peace with God that is more objective in nature, and then the peace of God that is more subjective. And so with our takeaways here briefly, I just want to break down these two dynamics of peace and a final charge to us, that we would be agents of peace. But first, let us experience peace with God by receiving Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. This is that object of peace. It has to do with our relationship with God first and foremost. Once once more, Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you're in a place where you have never truly experienced this peace yourself. This is the kind of peace that isn't driven by the waves of circumstances in our lives. No, when we receive Jesus Christ, we, first of all, we, re- we cease to be God's enemies and we come to experience his perfect peace. It has nothing to do with how we feel. It is an accomplished fact. Christ has made peace through his blood shed on the cross. So as a response to that, let us, or let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. This echoes the words of Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. This again is that more subjective peace. It has to do with our experience in life. This is the kind of peace that involves a settled and positive tranquility that helps us deal with the situations and circumstances that we face in life. And Philippians 4.7 reminds us in the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. We cannot experience this kind of peace, though, if we have not first experienced the peace that I mentioned beforehand, that is, the peace of receiving Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So receive Jesus Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And third, then be an agent of peace in this weary and war-torn world. Our peace with God and the peace of God are the foundation then of Christian unity. And Romans 12, 18 reminds us, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There may be particular people that God might place on your heart that you know you need to reach out to perhaps even in this season, this season when we think about hope and peace and joy and love and light. Who is it that God is placing on your heart to reach out to, to seek peace and reconciliation because of the peace that Christ has first secured? The peace with him allows us to then have peace with one another. But even as we consider being agents of peace in this 
weary and war-torn world, one of, the, one of the ways that we have to do that is actually in serving refugee families in our, in our very community. And so in a few moments, we're going to hear about some ways that we can do just that. To make it much more personal, again, as I mentioned, there are overwhelming numbers that can just dull our senses. But then when we think about individual families in need, to be a, a, an agent of peace in the midst of a weary and war-torn world. Church, we were enemies of God, but peace has come through the life death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We just sang of this peace. Peace has come. Let us experience peace with God, first of all, by receiving Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. If you have never done that, would today be the day? Allow the peace of Christ to rule in your hearts on a daily basis. And church, let us together be agents of peace and reconciliation in the midst of this weary and war-torn world. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, I pray for my sisters and brothers, all those hearing my voice here, online, wherever, Lord. I pray for the restless, the struggling, the weary. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for the peace that you have secured and the peace that you now so freely give. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the cross, for laying down your life as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins, for being the perfect peace offering once and for all. And even this morning, Lord Jesus, as we come to the table, help us to remember, remember your sacrifice on our behalf and even in heightened way. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.